This is how most wars begin. An advance party of operatives, with shadowy links to their government, lands in the country they want to invade. If they're good, they'll avoid getting caught. But if they're really good, they'll be welcomed, even celebrated. When the Russians arrived, it really was like when after the war when all the Americans started coming. It was sort of fascinating. Nobody cared about the Arabs coming. But the Russians sort of gave a kind of lift to the whole scene. They just seemed to inject a whole new excitement, in a funny way, into, into English life at that time. For two decades now, the narrative of the men who bought up Britain, the Russian oligarchs, or as one socialite calls them, the Ollies, was a good one. By opening its doors to their wealth, Britain was attracting investment and globalizing Russia bringing it into the fold of Western liberal democracy. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but now you can only wonder, what on earth were our leaders thinking? When you look back on it, the amazing thing is how Britain thought it was in control. Its lawyers turned its courts into a winning battleground for the oligarchs, for a fee. Its real estate agents sold them wedding cake mansions and laughed at how vulgar they were when they dug out basement pools. Its officials sold them so-called golden visas. Its politicians gave them titles in return for donations. Britain banked their billions. But all along, it was the oligarchs who were pulling the wool over our eyes. They weren't vulgar and ridiculous, they were ruthless and efficient. From the moment the first oligarchs landed, they knew precisely where in the royal borough of Kensington and Chelsea to buy property. They knew exactly which lawyers to instruct, which politicians to befriend, which journalists to butter up. They even went straight to the right decorator. Did the, the powers that be say, get a very famous decorator to do your house? That's quite interesting. Or well, I might have said, get him into the network. Looking back, I just wonder if that might have been quite planned, that they should all come to me. At the head of the advance party were two men, the two who are at the heart of the story of Londongrad. Alexander Lebedev is a former KGB officer. He's the man with the money and, as we'll see, with the plan. He got rich in a hurry when the Soviet Union fell apart. But the plan he put in place to capture London was slow and meticulous. And Alexander's son, Evgeny. For years, he was an inconsequential-looking party boy. But just look at what happened to him. I, Evgeny Lord Lebedev, do solemnly, sincerely and truly declare and affirm that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, her heirs and successors according to law. In 14 fast years, Evgeny rose from a fixture on the social scene to a seat in the House of Lords. He did it with Prime Minister Boris Johnson's help and despite a warning from the security services. There's never been a story quite like it. And not just because of where Evgeny got to, but because of how he got there. Exquisite, exquisite. I mean, it's a different level of elegance, really. This is the peak. When you live in London, there's nowhere higher to reach than being in Lebedev's yeah. parties. Those parties were dazzling. 
amount of fame in the room was breathtaking. Nobody ever got so many famous people in the one room at one time as Evgeny. It really was extraordinary. Every actor, every politician, every model, everybody went to it. Is it really possible, really, to buy power and influence in Britain by spending more money than you or I could ever imagine on parties? If you'd asked me over a year ago, I wouldn't have believed it. But now, I can see it's not just a possibility. It actually happened. I can even see that the parties might have been flashy enough to distract people from the sinister things that were happening in their long shadows. I think until my dad died, everything was really below the radar. So, like, a big, it was quite a big story when Abramovich bought Chelsea. Like, oh, here come these, like, Russian oligarchs. But it was all very hush-hush. And so I think the thing that there's some British people who were taking money, who were dealing with Russians, you know, who were, like, facilitating dubious Russians coming to this country, I don't think they realised how close to home the danger actually was. So I think 2006 was probably the year in which, by the end of it, I had concluded that we had a serious problem in Russia. I'm Paul Karwana Galizia, and this is the story of Alexander and Evgeny Lebedev because it seems to me that their story reveals so much about this country's story as well. I'm interested in finding out what Britain did to itself as it opened its doors to Russian money. Were all those warnings about how corrosive and dangerous it would be just ignored because the sums involved were too big? Is it actually possible that the UK brushed aside assassinations, murders on British soil, because they were too inconvenient to stand in the way of the relationship with Russian money? It looks that way, but it's an extraordinary thing to contemplate. Until, finally, Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine made it impossible to keep looking the other way. I think the story of Russian oligarchs in London might tell us more than almost any other about a particular sort of British decline. A moral decline, for sure, but more than that. A betrayal of the big story the UK tells itself. About fair play, the rule of law, a country that can't be bought. After Ukraine, a lot of people will want to close the book on the whole chapter. But it's too early for that. We'll be living with the fallout for years to come. I think it's changed Britain in ways we can't fully see yet and I want to know what they are. From Tortoise, this is Londongrad. How the Lebedevs partied their way to power. Malta, you might say, is punching above its weight. The smallest nation in the European Union is home to one of its fastest growing economies. But as we discovered on a recent visit, Malta is earning a reputation for rampant corruption and dubious dealings. The whole of the story of Londongrad has come as a surprise to me, and that's a lot to do with where I'm from, Malta, a small island in the Mediterranean with none of Britain's big ideas about its place in the world. It's never thought of itself as the sort of country that can throw its weight around. The opposite, really. In the past 20 years or so, it's become famous for being more or less overrun. Overrun, that is, by a flood of foreign money, a lot of it from Russia, 
that crept into the system and then almost imperceptibly to complete whole of it. By the time we realized what was going on, too much of the economy and politics was hooked. And the process of unwinding has been difficult and violent. But I know Britain well. It's a much stronger country than Malta. You haven't been overrun for a thousand years, right? And I didn't expect it to happen now. But then I started to see some of the same Russian characters I saw popping up in Malta and politicians and institutions behaving just like I'd seen back home, doing everything they could to get their hands on the new money, whatever it took. And it set me off on a long investigation into whether, actually, Britain is more like Malta than I'd ever imagined. The story of Alexander and Evgeny Lebedev in London goes back decades, and in this series, I'm going to tell the whole of it. But I want to start in 2006. It was a big year for the Lebedevs, and a turning point. It turned around the party which Atish Tessir ended up going to. It was one of those endless summer evenings, you know, one of those days when like, the light just won't seem to really kind of fade at all. The fact that Atish even got invited already tells you a lot about him. He's a writer whose books range from Islam and identity to his relationship with his father, who was governor of Punjab until he was assassinated. Atish lives in New York now with his husband, but back in 2006, he was dating Ella Windsor, Prince and Princess Michael of Kent's daughter. And um, through her, I suppose, the world of uh, a kind of aristocratic social London opened up to me. And it was a very enclosed world, you know, uh, brufty and toffy and bucky, and, you know, the kind of almost like a parody of English uh, upper class life. Uh, country houses and uh, a nightclub called Bougie. There was a sort of international element too. They were kind of glamorous foreigners. And and Jordi Gregg, who was a, a kind of, I would describe him as sort of social fixer of sorts. He was pretty ubiquitous around as well, always trying to get someone to go somewhere because that was sort of his cachet. Jordi Gregg was the editor of Tatler. In May 2006, he had a meeting which he would say totally changed his life. Evgeny turned up at Jordi's office with a PR agent. She told Jordi that Evgeny was launching a charity with a Russian called Michael Gubachev at Altorp House, Princess Diana's childhood home, and asked him if he wanted to cover it in the magazine. Do you mean, Jordi asked her, Gorbachev, the man who changed the world? She looked blank, but Evgeny was pleased that Jordi got it. In fact, Jordi got it so much that he offered to co-host the party. He got it so much that Evgeny made him a trustee of the charity itself, the Raiza Gorbachev Foundation, named after Mikhail Gorbachev's dead wife and financed by Alexander Lebedev to treat children with cancer. The party arrived on the 10th of June, 2006. We drove up from London with a, a kind of English social figure called Nikki Haslam drinking like rosé on the way and arrived in this extraordinary house which I was very much aware of as being Diana's house 
and there were I feel like I want to say like there were contortionists hanging from the trees and acrobats and like a kind of Russian circus atmosphere. There was an equestrian ballet by Cossacks who rode in from the woods. There were jeweled camels roaming the grounds and golden or shetra caviar. The Black Eyed Peas played and Gorbachev's favorite band, the Scorpions. We used to do like like drugs in those days. I remember like probably doing MDMA and uh, it was surreal because there was this kind of fetishizing of the Cold War and it was all like very sort of peace and love and you know this and then suddenly like this band from my childhood the Scorpions came on playing like winds of change like down to Gorky Park like like super like like kind of as if the Berlin Wall had just come down or something and and I walked onto the dance floor like probably uh, in a fairly heightened state and I see <laughs> dancing in a circle Orlando Bloom, Mikhail Gorbachev and Salman Rushdie like this has got to be the most fucking surreal thing I've ever seen in my life. There was a charity auction to win a tour of the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, a flight in a MiG-25, dinner with Mikhail Gorbachev himself, some of Christina Aguilera's jewellery and Tracy Emmons' art. It raised £1.5 million for the foundation. That's half a million less than it cost Alexander to host. It showed high society at its most opulent. But more than that, it showed how Evgeny longed to break into that society and how determined Alexander was for him to succeed. It was a splurge of new money to impress people who'll always look down their noses on it. One person involved in the party's organization, someone from what I guess you'd call an aristocratic background, remembers Evgeny's insistence on the white tie dress code. I tried to tell him it's not a good idea, he says. But you know. Atish, when you look back on the party, did did it feel like maybe a, a debutante ball is the right way to, to frame it, that it was kind of Ev- Evgeny's debut? Or was he not very present? I feel he was not very present at that point. So I do remember him later. Uh, he had this very striking face, almost like one of the paintings of the Russian painter Ilya Repin, you know, like very, uh, these like fairly piercing eyes, very gay seeming. Uh, there was always a kind of sexual tension around, I felt, around him. But Nikki Haslam, the decorator for the upper classes, who drove up in the car with Atish, swigging rosé, remembers Evgeny differently. People were attracted to him in a funny way, but he just had that magnetism. Because he was sort of quietly listened very well, but he didn't talk much. But he, 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 was, he, he was and is an extraordinary person in a way. There's something about him, no question. Alto paved the way for more parties, more opulence, the best party planners, India Langton and Amanda Ferry, the best skaterers, Cellar Society and Urban Caprice, an insistence on using models as waiters, 
an obsession with the guest list. People weren't just keen to be invited to Evgeny's lavish parties. They were desperate. It was extraordinary how he gathered people. And the thing to remember is that Evgeny and his father Alexander, let's not forget, gathered them for a purpose. Not what it said on the invitation. Not really to raise money for charity. The Lebedevs were announcing themselves. They wanted London to know they'd arrived. They had. And they weren't the only ones. My first was Deripaska, through I met through his then great friend and mine, Nat Rothschild. And I did his apartment in Moscow. Nicky Haslam doesn't just work for the rich and famous. He also works for the rich and not so famous, like the oligarch Oleg Deripaska. Well, you know perfectly well that, you know, sort of, you know what they want, sort of manly. We're at Nicky's flat in Kensington, sitting in a beautiful room with large windows and high ceilings, decorated with portraits of Nicky himself, one of which is a large nude, because, he told us, nobody else wants them. Peter was incredibly nice to work for. That's Peter Arvin, the billionaire founder of Alpha Bank, who kept a relatively low profile until he was recently sanctioned because of his support for Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Another oligarch. Peter had built this house, and I said to him, can I twiddle it up a bit, make it a bit more fun? He said, yes, please do. And they loved the house when it was finished. Here's Roman Abramovich, who bought Chelsea Football Club, among other things. Abramovich, or Roman, that call him. So Abramovich rang up and said he'd rented this house for a year or sometime. Could we do it? But very, we did very stylish things. I did it with my Canadian partner, Colette Van der Tillot, and he hated it. He absolutely hated it. What did he tell you? No, I heard. He never. He was never rude about. It. He never said to be that. He never said we had. He just. I just. I just heard that it wasn't what they wanted, and he really just wanted sexual leather sofas and a huge TV. You know, very manly. Yeah, very manly. But he couldn't have been nicer about it. Paid. They all paid wonderfully. It wasn't just the decorators and architects who were paid wonderfully. So were the lawyers and bankers and accountants and the state agents. And the oligarchs didn't just spend a lot of money. They also seemed to know exactly how to spend it. I suppose they just heard, or, or did the powers that be say, get a very famous decorator to do your house, that's quite interesting. And I was, you know, they might have said, get him into the network. I don't know, it's sort of looking back, I just wonder if that might have been quite planned, that they should all come to me. It's easy to see with hindsight, but at the time, there was an excitement about the oligarch's arrival and little concern that I could find when I looked through the newspaper archives about how their money might influence public life. In general, that's because they didn't seem to try to integrate themselves into Britain's social or its political fabric. That's where the Lebedevs were different. But the other Russians were arriving too. Scotland Yard is investigating the suspected poisoning of a Russian dissident living in Britain. Alexander Litvinenko, once a colonel in the Russian security service, now he's fighting for his life. Just a few months after the Old Tour party in 2006, the Russian dissident Alexander Litvinenko was murdered in London. On the 1st of November, he had lunch with an Italian contact in a Japanese restaurant in central London. On the same day, he met two Russian contacts in a London hotel. 
Hours later, he began to feel ill. Scotland Yard says until it has that information from the toxicology report, it won't speculate as to what may have caused his condition. It took the British authorities only a short while to figure out that it was a state-sponsored assassination. Sponsored by Russia, of course. And the fear it caused, particularly among well-connected and well-off Londoners, the kind who might find themselves bumping into Russians at parties, is hard to exaggerate. It was a seismic moment, or it felt as if it was. My name is Anatoly Litvinenko. I'm the son of the man best known as a poison spy, Alexander Litvinenko. For Alexander Litvinenko's son, it was simply bewildering. I, I guess that's about yeah. I, I guess it's a best and most succinct way to present myself. If um, if if other children at school asked you what did your what do your parents do, what what would you say? Back before everything became public, I used to just say my dad was a journalist. It was kind of a truth, but anyway, even if I knew exactly what he was doing then. I was open to talk about it. It would have been easy just to say he's a journalist because the other story is way too complicated to explain. But I didn't know exactly why or what was going on precisely. But So, like, I knew we were on that side against that other side, which is back, back in Moscow, back in power, sort of. So Later, things changed for Anatoly from bewildering to overwhelming. Like, as soon as he died, they basically identified polonium-210, and from that moment, it became a huge international incident. We had a lot of police attention, media attention, everything else. Like, it's a hard thing to talk about, and um, it's really hard to express what what you feel. And I feel I'm quite good with words in general, and I still, and I still struggle um, <laughs> to really make my words do what I want them to. It should have been a turning point in Britain's relations with Russia, but history failed to turn. The assassins left a trail of poison halfway across central London, but the police investigation stalled because Russia refused to extradite the suspects. So Anatoly's mother, Marina, began campaigning for a public inquiry. Theresa May, Britain's Home Secretary at the time, ruled it out, on the grounds that it might damage the country's relations with Russia. And relations were good at the time, with some Russians even though Alexander Litvinenko's wouldn't be the last poisoning of a Russian dissident on British soil, and even though some people in the UK were trying to sound the alarm. So I think 2006 was probably the year in which, by the end of it, I had concluded that we had a serious problem in Russia, but sadly that our politicians and policymakers were not taking it seriously enough. Chris Steele now runs a private intelligence firm, which was behind the Steele dossier. The report that contained allegations of conspiracy between Donald Trump's presidential campaign and the Kremlin around the 2016 election. But he used to work for MI6, where he headed the Russia desk. He joined Britain's foreign intelligence agency around the same time that Alexander Lebedev joined the KGB's foreign intelligence division. There was just no appetite, really, for revising our view of Russia and in, in addressing what was growing out of it, the sort of the virus that would, would come later. We have, over a period of 25, 30 years, allowed our country to be um, 
suffused with uh, money from uh, Russian expatriates, uh, some of whom continue to have very close links with the Russian state. Dominic Grieve is a barrister, a former Conservative MP and Attorney General. He was also the chair of Parliament's Intelligence and Security Committee when it carried out an inquiry into Russian influence in the UK. We'll hear more about that in another episode, but there's a section in it called Welcoming Oligarchs with Open Arms. The welcome started with the fact that back in the 1990s, at a time when the Iron Curtain had broken down, the UK government wanted to attract inward investment, and as a consequence, it had a UK's investor visa scheme, which was designed to facilitate people with large amounts of money coming and settling and investing and working in this country, which I have to say is a perfectly legitimate activity. But it also proved attractive to the new Russian oligarchs. The consequence was the inrush of a large amount of money for investment purposes into this country, which had, in some cases, uh, unexplained origins. And maybe they came to London because they liked the rule of law and wanted a British education for their children. Or maybe they thought London was a very good place to launder their money. Whatever it was which drew the oligarchs to London, 2006 was the year everything changed for them. The British establishment was tripping over itself to welcome its new neighbours. Lawyers, PR people, city dealmakers and interior decorators formed an orderly queue outside their private offices. At all talk, Alexander and Evgeny had effectively announced that some oligarchs wanted to be players on the social scene as well. And the murderous politics of Moscow had come to London for a visit, to keep the exiles on their toes and remind them that they couldn't ever completely escape. The real drama of Londongrad had begun. On the whole, you suspect, Alexander and Evgeny must have put 2006 down as a good year for them. And if they thought they had a lot to look forward to in London, they were right. But Alexander, even more than Evgeny, knew that year wasn't when it all began. He'd been building up to it for decades. That's all in episode two of Londongrad. Thank you for listening to Londongrad. This series is reported by me, Paul Karana Galizia. The producer is Katie Gunning. The sound designer is Tom Kinsella. The editor is Kerry Thomas. I hope you're enjoying the series. I have been reporting on the corrosive effects of illicit money coming into Europe since I joined Tortoise four years ago now. If you're not already a Tortoise member, I'd love to invite you to join to get even more slow and considered journalism, as well as invites to exclusive newsroom events. You can use my code PAUL50 to become a member for just £50 a year. Visit tortoisemedia.com invite and use the code PAUL50. Thank you.